<coughs> I thought we could uh, begin the afternoon with um, a period of time for some more questions, if people have, and um, before we start on the next little section of the teachings. So if there's anything um, that uh, people would like to have uh, clarified or things to address from this morning or what came up during the, uh, the lunchtime meditation experience. Yeah, there's a hand there by the pillar. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, if you could put the microphone closer to your sure. mouth. Sure, yeah. One thing that came up in reflecting over the morning's teachings at lunch was the idea that you know, fear arises and passes away. I know for many of us, it arises and it stays. <laughs> now, is, is that because we're setting up like a standing wave of, of thought in our minds where we're, we're you know, focused on it and we keep you know, reintroducing it? it? It doesn't seem to be something that comes and passes. <laughs> right. Well, uh, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Um, that, that, was, that was how I, ex- I w- used to experience it. I used to, my, my feeling was that that I'm always afraid. I feel anxious the whole time. And so that was a story that I told myself. And it was just, it seemed so normal and, and quite realistic. And then it was, it was only when I, I in a way, turned the, turned the microscope up and, and looked really closely, then I began to see, well, that's what I say to myself. I've got a fear problem. I'm, I'm, I'm always anxious. Um, because whenever I look, it seems to be what's there. But is that really the case? So bringing that, that quality of examination and exploring, then uh, I began to see how that was just a, a habit of, of naming that experience. Oh, this is my anxiety problem. Because, uh, as I've often said at these events before, you know, it, was, it was so normal for me to feel anxious, I didn't even realize it. It was just... Uh, I've already been uh, a monk for about six or seven years before I realized that my default relationship to the world was, if it exists, worry about it. (laughs) That's the the fundamental program, you know, that if it exists, there's cause for anxiety. And that, um, you know, it's it's funny now, but, you know, (laughs) it was not very amusing at the time. But then once I noticed, I think that's incredible. Whatever it is, even if it's, it's um, you know, <coughs> hearing a, uh, a, a radio playing some song that, that I didn't like, there was a feeling of, oh, that person must be um, very unhappy because their song's not popular. And I'd be, and I'd be upset for them. <laughs> like, or worried about their song was going to fail. Like, it's not my responsibility. I don't even like the music, but I'm worrying about you know their the, their song being a failure, yeah, or whatever you know you name it, anything would do. So then I uh, I began to notice, geez, this is incredible. This is just this is just this continual sense of anxiety that, that's based on every experience that I, I it defaults to this all the time, and so then <coughs> then I began to think, well, I've got a, I've got a fear problem. Because that's what happens, and because it was so pervasive, like I said, it was just like the force of gravity. It was so normal; you just didn't even notice it. 
then, so then I, for a, a few years I saw it, but I couldn't do anything with it. It was just, it just seemed like that's my problem, what do I do with it? And then, like I was saying earlier, there was this feeling of, oh, this is, a, this is my problem, and wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have it? And then particularly because I was living in the same monastery as Ajahn Samay, this was at Amaravati Monastery, where I'm about to go. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, you know, how you hear the same teachings over and over again for years and years, decades, and then, and then it was uh, uh, one of those, oh, I think I've heard him say this before, feelings. <laughs> and he was, because what he would say over and over again, he would say, it's not me and my problem, there's the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. It's the Buddha mind seeing the way things are rather than this is me and my problems. And, that, and he kept talking about this is a paradigm shift that we need to make. I think it's actually even in the introduction to the island, the book on Nibbana, that he, did, uh, he says the same thing. That we, make this, we need to make this paradigm shift from me and my problems to the Buddha seeing the Dhamma, the, the, the wise mind seeing the way things are. And so at some point I, I clicked and, and realized, oh, Maybe that actually refers to this. Oh, well, there's a thought. And so uh, I began to, to, to look uh, and re- recognize, all oh, right, that's exactly what I do. I said, this is my fear problem. There's a real me who, owns, who is the real owner of that real object. I'm, I am the owner. There's this real thing, and it's mine. And that's the paradigm that's been set up. And so listening to what he was saying, okay, well, let's see if we can deconstruct that, or is that really true? And so then bringing the, the, the close examination on it, because I, I've been meditating a long time, so I knew how to do that, but bringing that quality of close attention to it, I began to, to, to recognize, oh, look at that. It's not there all the time. That's just my presumption. It's just because of not looking closely, all the, all the dots seem to join up. It's like what the brain does with, with perceptions, you know, that uh, what neuroscientists are realizing now, maybe you're a neuroscientist, so I shouldn't tell you, but anyway, what they're realizing now is that, that a lot of what we think we experience is just the brain patching in an impression from memory and imagination. So when you see a ba- two basketball players, like one throwing the ball to the other, you think you see that orange ball going from one set of hands to the other. But what you, you don't, you actually see a blur of orange. But because you've seen a, a still basketball before, your brain says, I can see the ball going from that person's hands to that person. But it, that's, that's not actually what's registering in the, in the visual cortex. But the memory patches it in and creates a facsimile. So that's what we think we see. And that's life. It's a lot of patchwork and, and, and guesswork and supposition and memory and imagination gets woven together. So there's this feeling, I've, I, I'm always afraid, or that's, that's, that's always there. But it's, it's that continuity is deceptive. It, and then when you bring up the, 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 um, the, close, the quality of close scrutiny, you begin to see, oh, it actually does arise and cease. And the feeling of my problem is also, that's another impression that's arising and ceasing. And the, the felt experience is, there is an awareness, there's an awareness of fear. It feels like this in the body. It has this, these kind of qualities. It's aimed at that object, a f- fear of being caught in the traffic, fear of someone not liking me, fear of 
being late for a meeting, whatever it might be. And that, <clears throat> so when you, but when you withdraw the attention from the object and you bring, you bring it back to the experience itself, you say, oh, this is the feeling of fear. And so I, I got interested in that. And for about two or three years, that was the, the, the sole focus of, of my meditation. That's all I was looking at for about two or three years. And it took that, that length of time to really home in on it. And, but then by looking at it with that kind of scrutiny and, uh, and working with it in, a, in an active way, then by the end of that time it was really clear that it's, it is just a, a, a passing experience, that there's strong, it's a strong habit, but it's not who and what I am. And what I used to do was at the beginning of each day, when the, the morning sitting every day, I'd say, okay, when, whenever a feeling of fear or anxiety about anything whatsoever arises during the day, it's my intention to take my, my mind off the object, the thing that I'm afraid of, and bring it back to the feeling of fear itself and to notice where is that in the body. And over and over again, what I, when I would, and I would set that intention at the beginning of the day and try to stay with that. So then over and over again, I'd find it's this tension in my solar plexus. And then what Ajahn Sumer, and he would talk about this, this kind of practice a lot. He'd say, okay, you just go to that feeling and then relax. Just see if you can relax the body or let the, let the solar plexus soften. And then go back to the thing that you were afraid of and see what it's like. And nine times out of ten, or 99 times out of a hundred, there's this moment of, what was I worried about? Um, was it the, no, it was the, oh. <laughs> there's a groping to try and remember what it was. And then you think, oh yes, right, the traffic, you know, or that person. And, and it, you realize that, that without that physical tension, that fear really has a problem taking hold. And... Um, that I have been told that one of the reasons that Valium is, is a, um, a, very act, a very effective drug is because it's a muscle relaxant rather than a, a particularly psychoactive drug. And that it's because you can't keep a good fret going <laughs> if you're loose. You've got to be tight. That's why we say uptight. You've got to be tight to keep a good fret going. If you're, I mean, if, if you just, right now, if you just tighten your, tighten your gut, instantaneously you feel anxious, right? And then you relax. The world got better, didn't it? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's weird, but that's, it's all, it seems almost magical. So it just took just her. <laughs> Short word, only four letters. But it took that kind of application uh, and focus on that for a long time. So I would suggest it's the same for everybody. But it's, it's something that you need to be desperate. <laughs> but it does work. And it, it, it's, that's the challenging that presumption that this is something that I've got that I need to get rid of. And I, and I am this person. Because it's, you're reifying the sense of an individual me. You're reifying the, that there's this real problem and that, that there's a me that can be the, the permanent owner of it. And so by bringing this quality of investigation and, and using really insight meditation to look at it, then you, you break up those presumptions and then see more the, the reality of it. But you can't just make just snap your fingers and make it, make it go away uh, in the space of one sitting. 
but um, I was desperate enough to <laughs> to want to apply my my mind in that way, and it, and it really helped enormously. So now I just can't get as anxious as, as I used to, and I was quite a fretter. <laughs> so, any other questions? Yes. Um, I find meditation so calming and relaxing often when I'm not being all different uh, that uh, I fall asleep a lot and I'd like to become wise and uh, have a lot of problems with fear but that process of relaxing into the breathing I just fall asleep a whole lot do you have any suggestions? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is one of the great uh, ailments of the meditator Um, because oftentimes it's only when things are exciting or frightening or, or irritating that we, we stay awake. <laughs> and that you know, the mind's fundamental nature is both perfectly peaceful and perfectly awake. And so um, with meditation, really what we're trying to do is to uncover that fundamental quality. The, and Because it seems anathema to us, because it seems like if we're alert, we're excited, we're interested, we're frightened, we're, we're annoyed... So we're, we're alert, and then if there's nothing much going on and nothing to be excited about or frightened of or annoyed by, then <laughs> that's, our, that's what we, we think of as relaxation. So it takes, it takes a bit of effort to, learn, to find that place that is quite peaceful, but also very alert. So one of the things that can help is just, when you meditate, don't close your eyes. Just keep your eyes open. Because dullness in meditation, is, it is a sleep state, and sleep works in waves. So if you can, if you can stay awake during that first wave of, of uh, going into a, a dull state, if you can, uh, in a way, ride that wave and not get swept away by it, then it's much easier to, to stay awake. So just um, keeping your eyes open. Also, it's helpful to put a lot of attention into your posture. Because if the spine, the more the spine is in an upright position, then that, the more that helps the mind to be to be bright and uh, and alert. So that uh, if you're if you're paying attention to that uh, a- aspect of the posture, that's going to help a lot. Also, if you know that your mind is is prone to dullness, um, then with the when the if you're using mindfulness of breathing to focus on, it's good to, in a way, lean towards the in-breath because that's the inspiration. It's sort of bringing in oxygen, brightening the mind. The out-breath is more relaxing, letting go, calming. If you're, if you're getting sleepy, you don't need more calmness. So leaning towards the... the, the or paying closer attention to the, the in-breath and brightening the mind and sharpening it, that can be helpful. Also, sitting on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> it's a guarantee. I, I spent a three-month retreat up uh, north of here back in 1995, and there was a, a cliff with a 300-foot drop. I used to go and sit there often in the mornings, because I'm not really a morning person, even though at the monastery we get up like at 3.45 or whatever. I'm still waiting for the day when my alarm goes at th- actually 3.30. Yeah? My alarm goes at 3.30, and I go, yes! 
<laughs> I'm probably going to give up waiting for the day. But uh, so I, uh, and it was a, a retreat where we were all doing solitary practice, just living in these tents on this hillside. So there wasn't any group meditation to galvanize the alertness factor. So I used to go and sit on this cliff, and I never nodded once. <laughs> it was a na- Mother Nature's cure for dullness. Yeah. So you can, rather than a cliff, you just sit a little. The edge of a sofa is a good starting point. <laughs> You're not going to drop 300 feet, but you might drop two feet. So even that can, can help to keep you, keep you perky. Yes? Oh, sorry. I'd be interested in hearing you talk about anger and triggers for anger. I am a very calm person normally, but if I get totally pushed by my children, of course, uh, then, um, you know, I find myself really struggling against anger. And so I'd be curious as to any insights or thoughts you have about how to deal with that. Well, anger is a... um well, it's good to distinguish between being angry and being fierce. Because I would say they're not the same thing. When we're angry, there's a, there's a definite quality of being lost and with a harming intent. You know, that there's... Um, and so that that's, that's always going to bring a painful and negative result. Uh, we can be fierce, or, or to speak in a, a firm and loud <laughs> manner, you know, from a place of great kindness and with no harming intent, with a, with a, uh, a benevolence uh, in us. So that there's, I'd say it's, it's not just a matter of, of always being sweet and nice. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure as a parent you appreciate that as a preamble. <laughs> because uh, sometimes it's necessary. If your kid is running out into the road, you, you, know, you shout or you grab the T-shirt and you pull because you care about the, the kid. So then, but learning to understand anger, um, again, it's uh, sometimes it's uh, we can look at it as like I've got an anger problem, and wouldn't it be nice if I didn't get angry? And then we we're not actually meeting the experience when it, when we we're we're feeling it. We're, we're just trying to climb over it to get to a place where we, we're not bothered by it or we're not doesn't happen. But like these other intense or painful emotions like fear or, or, or uh, such like, it's uh, an intense feeling that has a very distinct object. But if we are able, uh, able to, if there's a bit of space where you don't have to act, <laughs> take executive action immediately, but you just uh, are feeling that, that arising, just to bring the attention into your body and ask yourself, what's this feel like? Well, what's, what's the experience of anger like? And it's really uncomfortable. And that, um, that just that recognition of wh- why would I want to dwell in this? Why would I want to do this to myself? So just if you can have that amount of presence of mind to remember that. And if you, if you want to, to develop that as a skill, it's not very helpful just to wait until the kids are driving you nuts. But in the privacy of your own room... <laughs> You know, to, to use the meditation, say to deliberately think of an incident where you were made angry 
or something that is currently happening that rouses that within you. So that you bring the mind to a quality of calmness and then deliberately you know, trigger that angry feeling. And then, uh, you, again, with withdrawing your attention from the story or the memory or the, the, the fantasy, but bring it into the body. And, and the, the other people are not around, your kids aren't there, your partner's not there. You know. <laughs> it's just you by yourself, so it's a benign situation. But you're, you're in a way, watching, feeling the patterns as they're, as they're happening. So then, watching when that angry state arises, where is it? What does it feel like? And then learning to, 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 uh, to see it and feel it, to know it. And then the, the compassion side comes in where you recognize, wow, this is really painful. Why do I do this to myself? <laughs> so it's not just compassion for your kids because you're not yelling at them, but compassion for yourself. Like, why would I want to make myself so miserable? Why would I want to harm myself like this? And so then what we, we incline away from that habit not just because it's something that I shouldn't do, because it's, non, it's, it's, it's non-spiritual and bad, but more, why would I want to stick my hand in the fire and burn it? You know, it's a painful and destructive thing to do. So the letting go comes from a much more basic and fundamental place. Thank you. Yeah, there's one more. Um, I seem to have been <clears throat> become lately the sounding board for some of my friends' problems. And when they're sort of stuck in something, they'll t- tell me at length about their suffering. And these are people who don't meditate. And um, I, 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 I almost... It's like I, I, one time I heard Noah Levine say something like, if you don't practice, there's just no hope. There's no hope <laughs> of you ever learning how to love, you know, I think, or something like that. Um, do you know, I mean, he was very... <laughs> that's a paraphrase. Um, yes, I but, hope so. <laughs> uh, there's no hope of really fundamentally changing the mind mm-hmm. without paying attention to it. Was his. Mm-hmm. And so um, when the... I don't... Do you have any suggestions about how to speak to people and, you know, comfort them or something besides saying, you should really start meditating, which I have <laughs> many, many times. So, um. Well, there's no, I say there's no fixed formula for the, the right way. There, there isn't really a, a right thing to do. But apart from bringing mindfulness, because so, sometimes what's, what's needed is just to be an ear. And you just just to listen, and someone needs to offload, and that's the most helpful thing to do is just to let them go full spate and, and offload, and and just to be a good listener. Um, other times that just being the being there is not being and, and listening to them is not helping. Where it's actually more useful to just sort of chime in and say, "Well, actually, <laughs> if you want to know what I think about this, yeah, you know, what I'm what I'm hearing is X, Y, Z," um, and. Uh, and so, actually stepping in and giving a bit of direction. Um, the, uh, and sometimes the right thing to do is to say, um, I don't have time for this right you now. I love you dearly, but I just don't have time for this right now. And this isn't the time or the, or the place. I, I really would love to be able to help you, but uh, I just, there's nothing I can do right now. And sometimes that's the most appropriate thing. If you really don't have time or if... if um, uh, you're just not in a mood that you're upset about something yourself. You're just not in the, 
in a mood where you're, you're able to really hear them. You're like, I've got this appointment I'm supposed to go to, and you know, <laughs> there's this other thing going on, and I'm just not hearing them, and I can't get away from that. So sometimes it's helpful to say, look, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm preoccupied by this other thing. I would love to be here for you, but uh, you know, right now, this, this is the, the limitations I have. So um, when we, we talk about uh, helping, it can take shape in all sorts of different ways. And it's, um, it's most beneficial for us to, to not have a fixed way that we do that or, or a, like a, a certain uh, agenda, but to, in a way, try to attune ourselves to the, the needs of the situation. Um, in terms of encouraging people to meditate, <laughs> it's more, what teaches more or what encourages that is more the example rather than, than you need to meditate. <laughs> but when they say to you, how come you're so calm? Or like, why aren't you upset about this? Or I wish I could be like you. you know, how do you do it? And then you know, there's, a, there's, an, there's an, an inroad or an opening. Um, because people have to want to change. Um, and so sometimes when you're in that situation, and I, I've, I've been in the situation, probably many people here, where somebody's uh, unloading, and then you say, well, well, how about this? And then they say, well, that's not right because of this. And then, and then you say, well, what about that? And they go, well, that doesn't work either. And whatever you do, whatever you say, it's wrong. It's not good enough, or it's not. It's 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 out of place. And I've even had the even had the experience where the conversation goes on so long that you're actually suggesting something that they were <laughs> they suggested half an hour before, and then they say, "No, that's not that's not going to work either." <laughs> you know, you're just taking the words out of their own mouth and repeating it back to them, and they're still disagreeing with you. And you realize, well, they just need to have someone to disagree with, yeah. and it's just they're just looking for someone to say, "No, that's not right." And so when, if you recognize that kind of thing's happening, then, <laughs> you know, you can say, um, I'm not sure how useful this conversation is, or your own choice of words. I'm compulsively polite, but <laughs> usually. But, uh, you know, that, that just recognize, taking that little step back and saying, well, what's, where's this going, or how helpful is this, or what, what can I really offer here? And mostly what we can offer above all is, is our empathy and letting the words come from that place of empathy. And that sometimes the most helpful thing is to say, I don't know what to say here. Because that, that's, that's the truth and they, they can recognize, all right, <laughs> yeah, there isn't an answer to this. Or why should I expect her to, to know what to do? And then, but that, that in itself is... It's, it's comforting and helpful. It's relieving. And uh, someone was reminding me earlier today about... It's, it's somewhat related to that story of Ramdas and his, his stepmother, where um, yeah, when my, my own mother was, was dying of pancreatic cancer, and you know, I come from a very English family. I mean, I've become quite Californian in the last 15, 20 years. But I do come from a very frightfully English family. <laughs> and so... Yeah, it was the case that my mother, uh, she, she, had, she came down with jaundice and she was 83 years old. So 
um, apparently that, that generally means at that age that you've got some kind of obstruction to the bile duct and it probably means pancreatic cancer. Um, so she, my sister took her uh, to the, to the doctor because my mother was blind, so she couldn't actually see her own colour. But of course, being English, it was her friends at the pool who said to my sister, who, who was their gardener, they wouldn't say anything to my mother, you know, like, Pat, you're a weird colour. You know. like if she was in California, you'd say, Pat, you're a canary yellow. But they said to my sister, your mother's a very strange colour. I think, I think you should go and see her I mean, you know, as soon as possible. And so... Um, Finally, my, my sister popped around and saw, yes, my mother was indeed canary yellow. <laughs> and so she said, we need, you need to get to the doctor, Mom. And, and immediately my mother, she was very intuitive, so she knew what was going on. And so she had this, this very panicky ride to the doctor saying, yeah, this is the end, isn't it? This is the end. You know, this, this is the, the, you know, well, let's, let's go to this restaurant. It's my favorite restaurant. This will be the last time I ever... <laughs> and my sister said, Mom... We're just on the way to the doctors. <laughs> you were fine at the pool this morning. You know, you're probably going to make it till tomorrow. We can come to the, we can go to the restaurant tomorrow if need be. So she's trying to be comforting. But then I, when they got to the doctor, then of course the, the doctor, being English also, couldn't say to her, you know, Mrs. Horner, you've probably got. You know, they did all the tests and that. You know, you've probably got pancreatic cancer. Um, she said something like. Um, Mrs. Horner, this, this might be serious. <laughs> and then that was the code. Okay. And then that was as much as was ever said. So my mother knew, and the doctor knew, and my sister knew. And then when I found out, you mean you didn't actually sit down with her and, and say, yes, you've got pancreatic cancer, it's inoperable, it's untreatable, and you'll probably live no more than six months. And my sister went, well, I talked about it with the doctor, but we both recognized that that wouldn't help. So I thought, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and I got on my sort of, you know, we need to have a proper conversation. We need to kind of talk things through in, in my Californian <laughs> conditioning. But then, I, I real, but then when I got there and my, I sort of sat down with my sister and I was with my mother, I realized, darn it, they're right. Oh. Everyone knows what's going on, but it's just too invasive to, to, to say it. It's just too cruel in a way because that's her conditioning and that's the way they operate. And so everyone, you know, it's, it's like a whole herd of elephants in the living room. <laughs> but it's, you know, everyone, why I just happened to be spending six weeks with her, you know, I'd never, my, my visits to, 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 to England would be like about four days to stay with the family. Suddenly I'm there for six weeks. And we, we don't mention why I happen to be around. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, was, it was worthy of a Samuel Beckett piece. It really was. But uh, there's this, this thing that we're not mentioning. But that was fine. It was just this kind of dance that we, that we did. And so, and I kept finding myself thinking, like, oh, there's only some way I could help her. Because you know, she'd have these waves of anxiety and, and just it would obviously be a bit unsettled. And, and I think, well, it'd be really good. You know, after all these years, she's never had any interest in Buddhism and meditation and it'd be really good if I could just sort of introduce a few themes you know just a, a little something here and there but the more I did that the more I just made my, myself sort of anxious and, and fretful and I realized there's just no it's no entry point and also it's an arrogance on my part just like Ram Das, 
you know, it's an arrogance on my part, thinking I've got the answer for her. When actually what was needed was go walk in the woods and, and enjoy the bluebells. And nobody's allowed, nobody, no one's allowed to say, this will be the last bluebells. <laughs> you know, you know, that, but everyone knows, you know, you're all there together walking through the bluebells and everyone's thinking, this will be the last time mom sees the bluebells. But you can't say that. So it was a strange dance, but I realized that it was, uh, it was far better to just go with the, 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 the flow of, of what was comfortable and, and what she felt at home with, and then not be carrying my own agenda to it, but just to be around, to pay attention, to, sort of, to help out, to, to be supportive. And if she didn't want to, to talk about what was happening, then fine, it's her prerogative. And that uh, you know, she knew, and in, in that the, the, the four months, five months between when she was diagnosed and when she actually died, she actually really got herself ready. You, know, you couldn't say that's what she was doing. <laughs> but really, she was, at first there was this suddenly out of the blue, you know, she was just having an ordinary day at the pool, and the next thing she knows, she's got a, 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 a death date. Yeah, that was a you know big shock to the system. But then in that, and so that, that really shook her. But then it took those months to just take it in and digest it in her own way. And then as the end was coming, and I was back here for a, a few weeks, but my sister said they had some really great times. That she'd take them out for for meals and such like, and said she loosened. They found out a lot of her war stories. That her life in the army was not quite so pristine as we <laughs> had feel, formerly been led to believe. That my well, she got married after the war. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my sisters were privy to a few stories that I never heard you know, about my mother's experiences in the military. And, uh, so she, and she was just uh, ending her, her, her time in her own way. And so that kind of listening of being ready to, to not just come from our sense of what people need, but... Like, that was a really good lesson. Of um, uh, she doesn't need to hear about Buddhism or meditation, but just having presence and and uh, that attention and friendliness and just the um, uh, the quality of uh, of our, our ease at what was happening and our readiness to to be with what was happening and her, and her ending was was the that was the gift that was what was most helpful, and so that. It's paying attention to where the other person is at, as much and, and attuning to that as much as you can, um, and and being ready to lay aside your own anxieties or concerns or, or agendas. Yeah, then uh, then it, it's it's mysterious how it actually helps in the, in the best way. Okay, one more, and then we'll. We'll carry on with the next bit. I, I think my question will be able to be answered quickly, so that that will probably be helpful. Um, so I'm very new to practice, and I've told people I do more walking meditation than sitting because... I'm able to be in my body more and to sort of, when things arise, to let it go. 
And I think that most people do more sitting meditation than walking, and I find um, sitting quite difficult. Um, mostly because things come, and I absolutely can't let anything go at all. And this idea of inviting an emotion in, um, inviting something in and, and, and dealing with that in my body seems much more a proactive way to meditate than just sort of passively letting this stuff hit me like a freight train. And I wanted to ask, is that, is that how everyone else has been doing it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, probably not. But it's, a, it's like it's the difference between sending out invites to a party and having people just show up under their own, <laughs> under their own steam. You know, you've, you've actually put out an invite, so there's some kind of preparedness. Um, I don't know how many people do that uh, in, in a um, systematic way, but I found it incredibly helpful because it changes the dynamic. Uh, and it's, it also makes the emotion something that you're, you're interested in exploring rather than just crisis management of just trying to work with it when it just kicks the door in and then and makes itself at home. You know, you're, you're more like, okay, now who do we want to invite? <laughs> How do we, you know, what, what day do we, do we want them to come and so on? Okay. Have we got enough air in here? Or no. It's pretty warm. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we can put a fan on or a, open some more windows. We don't want to have any Thank you very much. That's good, yes. I have had people fainting on... Uh, one, one, day, one day long there was... Two, two different people fainted in one day. So I'd like to try and avoid that as the last... I don't want to try and make three in one day for a last hurrah, but... Uh, I think they did, yeah. So, try and keep the drama in the Dhamma talks rather than. So, I thought I would uh, offer another little piece um, that follows a similar theme. And this is a, um, uh, a Taoist teaching that I came across years ago, actually, in a t- Tibetan Buddhist monastery in the north of England. Um, but it, it carries the same kind of of um, tone as the uh, those little aphorisms of Kandanya. 
Close your eyes and you will see clearly. Cease to listen and you will hear truth. Be silent and your heart will sing. Seek no contacts and you will find union. Be still and you will move forward on the tide of the Spirit. Be gentle and you will need no strength. Be patient and you will achieve all things. Be humble and you will remain entire. So I was particularly struck by that many years ago because um, it's got this same sort of paradoxical tone but it has the ring of truth to it, doesn't it? There's this, um, and particularly that, uh, the line, be still and you will move forward on the tide of the Spirit. That uh, It's uh, pointing to that same, in a way, uh, trusting that this is a self-adjusting universe. That the, what it, the, the phrase, the tide of the Spirit, it's, it's a little bit um, uh, sort of non-Buddhist <laughs> or colorful, but it, ca- it conveys very accurately that sense of... Um, our nat- the natural attunement of, the, uh, of our heart to the way things are. And when the, the self-centered habit gets out of the way, then that uh, attunement, that uh, uh, intrinsic quality of, of relatedness uh, of our life to, to all life and to all things, that's what, that's what kicks in. That's what, what's what guides our actions. So this is... Um, uh, also, these are pointing to the quality of noticing that, that feeling, the habit of doing this, me trying, me getting, me, uh, me hoping, that are so ordinary and everyday, completely unremarkable. And particularly if you, you read uh, Buddhist books or guides to meditation, it'd be you know, try to concentrate your mind, try to let go of your distracted thoughts, try to develop loving kindness. You know, this is the way to, to bring compassion into being. There's a lot of doing and making happen, right? Yeah. And uh, concentrating the mind, developing jhana, developing insight, uh, letting go of greed, hatred, delusion, and so on. And so that it can be confusing. Uh, but if we're supposed to be developing all this stuff or getting rid of all this stuff, you know, how are we supposed to, to find this, this, uh, this other side of it? You know, which, um, what, what is the problem with trying? What is the problem with doing? What is the problem with, with uh, putting effort in? So what I'd like to, to look at this afternoon is, is uh, exploring the, that nature of, of um, what it is that's getting in the way. What is it that's snarling things up? That when they're, as it says, uh, be, be silent and your heart will sing, close your eyes and you'll see clearly. Be still and you will move forward on the, on the tide of the Spirit. What it's talking about is letting go of what is known as the becoming urge. Um, that is, this is Buddhist jargon, I realize. <laughs> but this is, this is that feeling of, of uh, meanness, I-ness, that is in a way the kind of relish that we, that we experience from, uh, from being, from doing. It's that I, me, this is mine. There's a charge there, isn't there? There's a that feeling of movement towards, even on your walking meditation path, that <laughs> I'm going somewhere, you know, or in the food line, you know, I'm going somewhere, slowly. <laughs> you know, that's becoming, it's like, okay, are we there yet? You know, that's, that's the becoming urge. Is that how long's the line? 
And then, then the difference between that, waiting for the line to move, nearly at the table, are we nearly there? Are we nearly there? Are we nearly there? This is the becoming and the suffering that arises from becoming. When you let go of that and you just happen to be standing there and it happens to be, conventionally speaking, the food line, and yes, people around you are moving, so you move your feet as other people move. You're still moving, but there's no, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? And so with meditation, it's exactly the same thing. You're, you're applying the effort, but uh, you're, it's not like, I'm trying to get concentrated. I want to get jhana. I want to get insight. I want to be, I want to be enlightened. But yeah, even those things are reasonable and wholesome goals, the more that we fixate on them and get caught in that, in that becoming, then the more we, we actually hinder ourselves from allowing that, that process to do its thing. The more that we get agitated in the food line, the more we create digestive problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that we, we make the, the whole experience of, of, um, of, uh, of receiving food and sharing food something that's much more stressful and difficult, Right? So that the, um, this area of, of becoming and trying and doing is an important area of, of meditation practice. And this is particularly because we tend to shuffle between I'm either doing something and engaged, and like we were saying about um, falling asleep with our friend there, we're kind of excited or interested or active. You know, like we, like we say, that's, that's exciting or that's interesting. Therefore, good. (laughs) And so we we shuttle between, that's exciting, that's interesting, or, well, there's nothing happening here. (laughs) We switch off. We we move towards the other partner of the desire to become, which is the desire to to not feel, to not experience, what's called vibhava-tanha. So bhava-tanha means the desire or the craving to be, and vibhava-tanha is the, the craving to not be to stop feeling, to not exist, to switch off, to check out. So our habit is to shuttle between those two, bhava-tanha-vi-bhava-tanha, between either thrilled with doing or excited and stoked about doing or just out, <laughs> disengaged, zoned out, not, not connected. So what we're talking about is the middle way, or what we're aiming at, and uh, we've... Um, I've focused on this on a lot of, of daylongs and teachings here in the past because I feel it's such a, an important principle. But the middle way doesn't mean just being uh, excited and <laughs> stoked half the time and zonked out the other half of the time. It's not just 50-50, so equal measures of bhavatanha and vibhavatanha. It's not like uh, just pushing for the next, leaning into the next thing half the time and then just dozing the other half. It's, it's a different quality altogether. And the way I like to represent it is, say, if this, this bell striker is, say, this extreme is representing the desire to become or the desire to, to be or to get, and that, that uh, bhavatanha charge. And this is representing the, the, um, the vibhavatanha, the desire to not feel or not be. The, the middle way is not halfway between the two. The middle way is the point that the two pivot from. That's, the, that's where they meet. It's, it's, the, it's transcending both of them. It's a whole different dimension. And um, So what, that, what this means is in the meditation, 
both with the walking practice as I was describing this morning uh, and in the sitting practice, you, you begin to notice that you, that you can find a way of engaging in steering the mind, like that um, using the weight of your own body, there's an inclining towards concentration, there's an inclining towards insight. But it's not, you're not pushing, you're not driving to, like with the walking meditation, you're not driving towards the end of the path, you're relaxing and letting the body move. And the body, the body does its walking, but you're always here. Similarly, with the breath, the breath can be moving, but that which knows the breath is always here. And so there, it's finding that, that quality of being still, uh, that, uh, that kind of, the awareness which is perfectly still, that is not tied up with, with movement and time, that is receiving the, the qualities of, of change and, and movement. And that when we are able to uh, really get a feeling for that becoming habit, and notice it almost like the, the feeling of gravity on the body or the, 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 uh, the texture of our clothes on our skin, when we can really see that, feel that, know that, then it's also something that we can begin to, to let go of. The, um, there's a, a, a Tibetan Lama who's taught here a few times before, Tsogni Rinpoche, and he has a, a very neat phrase to describe this, which is undistracted non-meditation. Undistracted non-meditation. So non-meditation is in terms of don't do anything. You know, that we, we tend to make meditation into a, some task or some thing that I'm doing. But if, uh, if we let go of that doingness and that thingness, um, and it, but also that's not just a matter of just letting the mind drift all over the place, there's an undistracted quality. But there's not a, a me doing something trying to, to get a result or to get focused or to get wise. Uh, another phrase that's very similar that uh, a Canadian um, meditation teacher called Kamananda um, developed, is, uh, he used to call it diligent effortlessness. <laughs> diligent effortlessness. So there's a diligence, there's a keenness, there's a, right, what's going on? But there's not, there's not an efforting. So... These are, are neat little phrases that we can use to, to point to that quality. Now, all of, I would suggest that all of us know that. We know that attitude, but we just don't... It's not a, 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 a muscle that we've used. It's not, it's not a, a resource that we've, we've called upon. So that this is something that it's, uh, I would like to, to look at in the meditation this afternoon to, to get a sense of can we find that balancing point where... There's activity, there's effort being made, but no efforting. Where there's directionality being, being given, but we're not, there's not a pushing. Where there's a, um, a, a caring, there's a, there's a, a, a tending, but without uh, a, um, a, a tryingness to, to, to fix or to help or to, to change. Does that make sense? Now, one of the problems with this is you think, well, that sounds great. If that's the stuff that's snarling everything up, great. Be fine to understand that and let go of it. The problem is that we really love becoming. In fact, most of the consumer culture and our career, (laughs) 
our careers, our lives, our relationships are based on becoming. Like someone earlier today was saying, well, Ajahn, you know, this move to Amravati, you know, it sounds like it is kind of a big position, you know. I really hope that's sort of that's okay with you and it's not going <coughs> to contribute to any kind of ego inflation. <laughs> and uh, because, you know, you get a promotion, it's like when it's not just the extra money, that then it's like, oh, <laughs> there's a la-di-da, you know. <laughs> look, at, look at me, I'm somebody, you know. That, uh, or in, you know, you, you're name-dropping so, such and such a famous person that you, you met or that, uh, you know, that you bumped into or invited you for tea. That, uh, and that there's a, there's a charge. We love that stuff. And beca- so becoming has a, a huge amount of uh, cultural and societal weight behind it. We love it. Being excited, being interested. You, you, and I'm not advocating numbness. Or, 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 uh, or a kind of um, false sort of disengagement. But uh, it's really interesting to me how being interested is good. Like, that's interesting. That's exciting. Because we feel alive. Or even sometimes if we're annoyed. You know, like people you know, watching Fox News just to get, <laughs> to get angry, you know. <laughs> You get a charge out of you know yelling at Bill O'Reilly, or, you know, that uh, going to scary movies, you know, watching scary. Why do we like that? Why do we like that? You know, because there's a thrill of being that that comes, and, and we associate that with feeling alive. Now I'm not uh, I'm not uh, advocating a sort of death wish kind of dharma. <laughs> uh, not at all. But this is also one of the reasons why the Buddha thought. After he was enlightened, there's no point trying to explain this to anybody because this goes so much against the, gra- the grain. People are, they, they relish becoming. They are addicted to becoming. They, they cherish only becoming. And, uh, but that which they cherish um, brings fear, and what they fear is pain. So he said, there's no point in me trying. The, the world is totally lost in this. Uh, there's no point in me trying to, to teach anybody. No one's ever going to get it. Because it seems so much anathema to our ordinary sensibilities. So it's a, it's a subtle point. Um, but, with, but he also said in that same little um, monologue of his, um, to abandon, the, relish, uh, to abandon the, the relishing of being without cherishing non-being. That's the middle way. To abandon the cherishing of being without relishing non-being. <laughs> uh, can, you, can you find that on your GPS? You know? where, where, where's, the, you know, where's the address? It's, it's a tricky place. But that's, that's the place of, of real happiness, the place of, of real peace, because we, we shuttle between those two. And, you know, and I speak in this way because I'm, I'm a, I fully confess to being a, a becoming addict. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, I think there should be another 12-step program for, for uh, you know, those, the, those of us who are uh, fully uh, uh, acculturated, <laughs> fully addicted, because it's, it's a, a, it is a, a powerful force in our life. And, and yet... Uh, the Buddha said, Nirvana is the cessation of becoming. It's when we let go of that 
and we just allow life to live itself, which doesn't mean some kind of vacant dissociation, but the ego and self-centered habits getting out of the way, and then our life lives itself, and our, our intentions and our actions are part of that life, living itself. Right? But just that, that little gesture of relaxation, letting go of the tryingness, letting go of the doing, um, just that little uh, relaxing of the grip then enables us to walk freely, and the walking happens, but we're not going anywhere. We queue easily, but we're not waiting. <laughs> we're standing in the queue, but we're not waiting. <laughs> not waiting for something to happen. And so it's a, it's a subtle shift of attitude, but it makes all the difference. It, it brings this incredible quality of, of satisfaction. So sometimes it's difficult to express, and so you get these paradoxical statements which can allude to it, like close your eyes and you'll see clearly, uh, cease to listen and you'll hear truth. But what those are pointing to is that um, if, you, if we stop trying to see, if we stop trying to listen, to get, try and stop trying to have, we just loosen the grip, then, oh, then you hear. Then your heart will sing. You know, then the, there's a, a relaxation. Seek no contacts and you'll find union. If you're not needing other people, when you let go of everyone, suddenly you find yourself connected to everyone. <laughs> that... Uh, you are, you're not needing others to be a particular way, and then you find, and you let go of that neediness, then suddenly you find yourself at home with everyone as a, a quality of belonging. So I wanted to put these, these themes into the air for the afternoon, and um, we have a, a couple of hours to play with until we get to the four o'clock becoming. <laughs> <laughs> becoming fest, yeah? Um, but uh, you know, and I, I like to, to dwell, uh, dwell on this theme, to emphasize this theme, because I found for myself this has been such an, an incredibly useful uh, area to focus on and uh, so liberating that uh, you know, it's something I like to, to bring up and, and uh, share with everyone. So if people would like to uh, take a minute or two, a few minutes to stretch your legs and uh, get, get yourself... Uh, Organized, and we can have the first sitting for the afternoon. <laughs>